This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Blowing a fuselage, a nurse and her grandchildren are feeling very lucky after a chunk of the plane they were on blew off mid-flight. Not just because they're safe and sound, but because they experienced something so unexpected. Critical conditions. A colleague of slain Gazan journalist Hamza Dadu says media workers in the territory are under attack, which makes the work they're doing that much more important. Word of mouse, a Welshman discovers the mystery cleaner tidying up his shed every night is much smaller in stature and has a much longer tail than he suspected. At a crossroads, the Manitoba government pledges to make the site of last summer's deadly bus collision safe by completely reworking the intersection. Don't cry for the absent leader. When the lead and the understudy both get sick, a British actor jumps into her car and into the starring role of Evita with just a few hours' notice. And putting the fender in offender. Authorities in Houston finally tracked down the monsters who caused hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage by ripping the front ends off multiple cars at a dealership. Two stray dogs who wagged their tails the whole time. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that always produces a bumper crop. Frequent travelers all have different demands and preferences when it comes to flying, but one preference every air passenger shares is that their aircraft not have a hole in it, which is why the story of Flight 1282 is so terrifying. American transportation authorities are investigating an incident where a hole opened up in the side of a plane during that Alaska Airlines flight. The plane took off from Portland, Oregon on Friday night, and about 10 minutes later, a door-sized chunk of the aircraft suddenly blew off. Cold air rushed in, the oxygen masks dropped. The crew turned the plane around and landed safely. No one was hurt. But as the head of the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board put it this weekend, it could have ended much differently. We are very, very fortunate here that this didn't end up in something more uh, tragic. NTSB Chair Jennifer Homendy. Investigators have now recovered the piece that fell off the plane called a door plug. Vicki Kreps was on that flight with her two grandchildren, Brady, who was seven, and Brinley, who was five. Here's part of a video she recorded after they were safe. First, I was just sitting down watching All of a sudden, I just look forward to this big blush of wind in my face. Then these things, then these masks come down. And then I put it on, and I just breathe through. And... That's because I want to be safe. I don't want to do anything bad. But there's a one million, billion chance of that happening. So it's so lucky that I got to experience it. Okay, now me. We reached Vicki Krebs in Vancouver, Washington. Oh, Vicki, Brady feels lucky to have experienced this. Is that the word you would use? No, I think it's lucky that we experienced it and survived. Yeah. Yeah, especially given what what we heard from the NTSB chair there as well. Is that clip, though, an indication of how your grandkids, Brady and Brinley, how they're handling things? I mean, are they doing okay? Yeah, as you could tell from the video, we've 
you know, taken a few chances with them to let them verbally express their experience to help them cope and be resilient. Yeah, and and so what are what have they been telling you? How are they processing this at seven and five years old? Yeah, Yeah, at seven and five, you know, they just are kids, right? They're just they're moved on and they're in school today. So, um, you know, they really don't understand the gravity of what could have been. I bet they're telling those stories all day on the playground and and in class, no doubt. But but what about for you? What's yeah. happening from your vantage point in those moments? Yeah, so those masks fell and, you know, instinctually he looked at me and said, they want us to put these on. And I shook my head yes. And it was so very loud that it was very difficult to hear each other speak. But I'm a healthcare provider. Mm-hmm. I'm a nurse. So my nursing hat sort of went on um, and I put my mask on first and then assisted Brinley to get hers on. She was a little more fearful than my brave Brady um, in the experience, and she was crying. So comforting her, getting them settled into the seat, comfortably being uh, consoled by me was my focus in those first moments. Before those masks came down, what was happening? What was your first indication that something was not right at all? Yes, first unusual thing was I... um, heard a hissing noise, which my brain interpreted as baggage moving and mm-hmm. overhead because also my body was being pitched forward slightly. I think now my assumption is that was probably the first sounds of the leaking air. Some hissing noise, a pitch forward, and then an immediate big gust of wind in our faces and we were pushed back into our seats. When you feel a gust of wind like that, I mean, yeah, is terrifying was, the right word? You know, when you're a medical professional and a first responder, your brain doesn't go where other people's brains go. Like I'm in medical nurse mode and looking at my environment and what are the right steps. And so I didn't have that panic. My focus was on those two little kids to my left and making sure they stayed safe and felt comforted. Uh, you went into that nurse mode. What about around you, the adults and others? Yeah, uh, you know, in my, I was in 19C, so the blowout was in 25-26. So Pretty close. About, yeah, about five or six rows behind me. But my focus stayed to my left with those kids initially. And then within seconds, there was a, like a smoky mist in the air, And that got my attention drawn away from them. They had pretty much settled in. So I lowered my mask to see if it was smoke and then could not smell anything. So put it back on and perked up and looked around. And over my left shoulder, I could see that there was a hole in the plate. That was my first realization that this decompression was this big hole. And how long does this ordeal go on for before you get to safety? (laughs) You know, Yeah, really not long. You know, obviously in the moments, all the moments felt very long. Mm. But I feel like Alaska got us down on the ground very, very fast. So we definitely felt the extreme decline. Our ears were burning from the pressure and, you know, you were feeling like you were dropping. And then the plane sort of leveled off. And there was this surreal kind of eerie calm in the plane. 
The piece that flew out is called a door plug and no one was sitting yes. next to it. That's that's very fortunate, Correct. obviously. The investigation, as you know, is, is underway now, but just getting started. Airlines are beginning their inspections of more than 100 Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes. What are the questions that, that you have? You know, how, how important is getting answers to you at this stage? Yeah, you know, I want to know that they're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. I think that's the important part of investigating. We were very fortunate. We were only at 16,000 feet. The loss of the air pressure for us, because we were all seat belted in, the impacts to life, it was a positive outcome. But at 30,000 feet, if it had happened, you know, just 10 minutes later, would have been catastrophic, you know. Um, there would have been more risk of us going unconscious, not being able to get those masks on, people being up and about walking in the plane. So I really think it's important to find out what went wrong and fix it. Has it changed how you think about air travel now or will it change you know, how you travel? No, you know, I've been on three flights since then. Um, <laughs> I flew those grandbabies to their parents and then took two flights to get home and, you know, each time I thought, oh, you guys are all pretty lucky because it's not going to happen to this flight. It's, <laughs> you know, the chances of it happened to me twice is nil. So yeah. I don't have those concerns. And what was that reunion like when you got your grandkids back? Oh, my goodness. Their parents were more than elated to be able to hug on them. Well, I'm glad you're all OK and that everyone on board was OK. okay Vicki, thank you for your time. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. Vicki Kreps was a passenger on Alaska Airlines Flight 1282. We reached her in Vancouver, Washington. The Premier of Manitoba says he's committed to making a deadly highway intersection safe. Today, Wab Canoe and his government released their plan to rework the intersection in southwestern Manitoba, where a bus full of seniors was hit by a semi-trailer truck last June. Seventeen people were killed and eight were injured. The RCMP say that the truck had the right of way. The bus only had to obey a stop sign before crossing two lanes of highway traffic. And that was far from the only crash at that site. Today, Premier Canoe promised $12 million to change that. Our team is here today uh, to respond in two ways. One, to indicate to the people of Manitoba that we are going to do the safest thing when it comes to the future of this intersection. And two, to tell the families, the survivors, the people of Dauphin and Carberry that as you move forward, to memorialize and commemorate the people that we lost and to remember this terrible tragedy, we will be there to support you. And we will help find the resources and we will deliver the funding to ensure that an appropriate memorial here in Dauphin, as well as a fitting uh, tribute at the site uh, near Carberry, will be a part of Manitoba's future. David Boziak is the mayor of Dauphin, Manitoba, where the crash victims were from. That's where we reached him. Mayor Boziak, how does this financial, multi-million dollar financial commitment and 
this plan, these concrete options for change at the intersection. How is all of that sitting with you today? Um, I think that uh, the process that the province presented to us and the steps that they've taken so far and have committed to taking um, in the future um, is uh, was well received by our community. Um, we're not uh, highway traffic experts or anything like that, but the process that the province laid out and how they, you know, came to our community and and uh, shared that information with the families first, and then um, uh, the media and the public. Uh, I think is uh, they they're doing as as good a job as they could, considering what's going on. What did some of the other residents, your neighbors, say today? Um, what what um, you know stuck with me most as I was chatting with a few of them was was that um, they had a sense that this was genuine care and compassion coming from the senior level of government here in the province. And and I don't know if that's surprising to some of them or it was reassuring. We spoke in the immediate aftermath uh, of the crash and we spoke about the intersection at that time as well, if memory serves me, serves me well. Um, just describe for our listeners, though, what the reality is like at the intersection and the dangers there. Yeah, it's um, well. The Trans Canada Highway is a twin lane highway that runs east and west, and Highway Five is an intersection that runs north and south. And there's a very shallow or narrow median, and uh, it's a it's a fairly busy um, in the prairie rural sense of things, not like a major city. Uh, type of of uh, thoroughfare, but it's a very busy place with lots of big uh, semi trailers and and um, equipment going east and west, and uh, getting across it from north and south is a challenge. And stop signs. Times. And, yeah. There's just stop signs. Yeah, and there, it's right? just a stop sign. Yep. No traffic lights. No, and you know some of the information that the province provided today, based on the data gathering and evidence regarding that intersection and other traffic circumstances indicated that traffic lights aren't necessarily a safer method of controlling that intersection, uh, mostly because of the speed on the number one at that place. The speed uh, on the highway is 110 kilometers an hour, and um, lights uh, have been proven, I guess, through their their data gathering, evidence collecting, um, isn't necessarily safer than the other three options that they presented today in their this preliminary And those report. options, the, the three of the options include a wider median, a roundabout, or an R-cut? Yes. Which is, which is similar to a U-turn, as, as uh, I understand yeah, it? Yeah, in the sense, yeah, where you would um, only, uh, my understanding of it, and that's the uh, first I heard of this type of um, control structure, but it's basically... Um, people going north and south, they're trying to get across the number one highway at that point, wouldn't be able to go across the highway, but they would turn, have a right-hand turn onto the highway, get up to traffic speed or merge with traffic, and then have a U-turn spot, have another turn onto the highway going the other direction, and then another right turn mm-hmm. to continue along on their way. So apparently, um, these are quite common in the United States, and there is apparently a new one that was just put into place somewhere around Saskatoon. So it's new to Canada, but apparently quite uh, the um, introduction into sort of highway traffic things um, in the United States. There's a a period of time that has to pass before you actually 
get decisions and then the changes, whichever one is decided right. uh, decided on in the end. It's going to take about six to nine months to, to figure out which option to go with, then community consultations after that. So so how are people there feeling about that wait? Um, I think that putting into the context of how long it takes to make a major change like this, that there's a reassurance, actually, that it's happening probably as quickly as it probably could. We haven't come to the one-year mark, even. It's just been about seven months. Right. So people are still grieving, the 17 people killed, certainly. Mm -hmm. At the time we spoke initially, you talked about how surreal it felt and, and how somber it was there. Yeah. How are people doing now? I would probably say that it's still the same for some people. And as I explained to a few people today and had discussions with folks today, that I would, there's a, a range of, of responses. And as you indicated, the, the 17 um, victims of that accident, their immediate families and friends have been impacted tremendously. And I spoke to one of the family members today, and she said her life changed forever on that day. Then one of the family members today said it was an accident and it was very unfortunate. And if we could go back in time and change it, we certainly would. But we can't and we have to carry on. And so I think it's it's really hard for me um, to to reflect all of the different sentiments mm-hmm. of the people in our community because it's affected so many of them in in such a wide variety of ways. Mayor, thank you. Thank you very much. David Boziak is the mayor of Dauphin, Manitoba. Last year, Rodney Holbrook noticed that items in his shed in Wales were being moved, so he set up a camera to see who the culprit was. That culprit has now been caught small-handed and dubbed the Welsh Tidy Mouse, because it is a mouse. Videos show the WTM moving items to a box, including small cups and a stick longer than its own body. We reached Rodney Holbrook in Bilth Wells, Wales. Before you set up this camera, Rodney... What did you notice? What kinds of things were being moved in your shed? Well, the first thing that did happen is in that box that we, where you see on the video, I got the peanuts in there that I chuck out for the birds. And every, every day I'll fill it back up again. And, but I noticed one morning I went in there and there was none, no peanuts in there. And I thought, well, I put them out last night. So I, I filled it back up again. And the next morning... All the peanuts was gone again. I thought, well, what is going on here? <laughs> Where's the peanuts going? A few days later, I found, uh, I got an old pair of shoes, which is in one of the drawers of my unit in the shed, and all the nuts was filled up in there inside the shoe. <laughs> yeah, so it was it just it food and, being moved? Or did you see other things moved as yeah, well? No, no, no it, was ju- it was just the peanuts. Okay. So what I'd done, I, I filled it up again, and lo and behold, the next morning, they wouldn't take on, but I had lots of uh, items put in there, like nuts and screws and all sorts of things, which you've seen on the video, but just covered <laughs> them over. So I thought, I'm going to have to um, film this. Okay, so you decide to set yeah. up the camera, and then I can imagine so the anticipation. 
the next day, it was all full up again. So I took the camera down and it videoed about probably 60 videos. And, uh, well, you know, when I got them on my computer and I come and I thought, wow, 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 look at this. <laughs> There's the, uh, the mouse in there filling it up with these uh, items. So oh, I was amazed. I was absolutely amazed. But <laughs> Just a single mouse. On one of the videos, there was a mouse. In fact, there was two ones, but I only ever see the one. Generally, it's just the one. I don't video every day. I haven't videoed for a week now, right? But, but now all the fans, everyone calling you today, want do they want more content? They want more videos? <laughs> Something different, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wildlife man, so I don't really like setting things up in that way. I, I'd rather it be natural. So it's as natural as I can get it, really. A, a pest expert named Gareth Davies spoke to the Washington Post and, and says that yeah. the mouse, I know you've described it as tidying. It says the mouse is likely hoarding. He says, quote, mice are very inquisitive creatures and they are hoarders. Yeah, yeah. They love hoarding food and everything else. It's in their nature. They are yeah. completely different to rats. So does that does that match up w- with what you're seeing? It's not it so much tidying does. as... Certainly it does, yeah. And I think it's covering the nuts anyway. What he's putting in there, the items, is probably covering the nuts to stop any other mouse getting there, trying it's, to hide them. It's protecting its its food. Yeah, its stash. <laughs> it's become part of the family now? Are you worried you're going to you're, they're going to leave you, this mouse, now? It's going to abandon you? <laughs> well, they, they, by all accounts, the wood mouse, that's what they're called, wood mouse, they um they only live about a year anyway, so according to some expert, I don't know if that's true, but they told me they live about a year, so this time next year it probably won't be in there. Oh. You know, most people want to get well, rid of mice as soon as they hear oh, them they or see them. Where but I live. You, do you do you like having this one around? Yes. You don't do much you don't cause much trouble. You just uh, you get in, into a, a bag I had what I put rubbish in you know, garden rubbish, uh, yeah, into that and made a great big hole in it. So I've had to get rid of it. But <laughs> other than that, no, no problem. Not me leaving a mess, droppings, etc.? Not really, no. Okay. I think okay. he's possibly, possibly coming from outside into me shed. It sounds like this mouse is like a fairy tale mouse. I remember watching Cinderella, the yeah, industrious little mice, yeah, or yeah, people have yeah, talked yeah. about ratatouille. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very much like him. What kinds of what are the, some of the other things that that it's moving around for you or for itself? Um, a few things been added to the to me bench from a part of parts of the um, the, the, the uh, parts of the um, shed, other places. Like I had some. My wife had her um, clothes pegs in there. Well, you've moved some of them over to the table, and he, we, you see on the video, he's. Um, Why? putting them in the box yeah so we do carry a few things over but generally half of it is what was there already but I just sort of it needed somebody to tidy it up for me and he's done it (laughs) (laughs) you're grateful to this little guy yeah (laughs) so we're calling you at the end of a very busy and long day Uh, where is all the attention coming from around the world yeah, well, mainly in Britain, first of all, but I've had uh, Australia, Germany, Canada, USA, of course. I think it was France. Quite a few places, yeah. Did you think it would cause, I, it would bring in this much attention? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, not at all. 
I'm enjoying it in one way, but now I'm getting completely tired out. I still got. A, I'm doing a couple of Zoom calls as well yet before I can get a bed. Well, Rodney, we'll let you go then and get some rest. Thank you. Yeah, good to hear from you. Take care. Thank you, my love. That was Rodney Holbrook talking about the fastidious mouse in his shed in Bilth, Wells, Wales. It looks like a scene from a Stephen King novel. Dogs tearing apart vehicles at a dealership in northwest Harris County and leaving behind hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage. Sorry to interrupt that report from last November, but ABC 13 Houston anchor Myra Moreno is right. That is pretty much exactly the plot of the Stephen King novel Scary Vehicle Dogs, in which dogs destroy a lot of vehicles. Some of you may be shaking your heads right now, but Stephen King writes a lot of books. Can you be absolutely sure he didn't write one called Scary Vehicle Dogs? Of course you can't. Still, as you'll hear, you are right to shake your head. It's a story you will only see here on ABC 13. And a story that will make you shake your head. See? And Ms. Moreno's co-anchor Jonathan Bruce is also right. You will shake your head if you haven't already. For this is a story of truly baffling acts of vandalism, made more baffling by the fact that one stray dog did all of the vandalism while another stray dog watched. So when Mr. Bruce threw to reporter Shannon Ryan, he asked the big question. Shannon, the big question here, certainly on my mind, why are the dogs doing this potentially? Yes, why potentially? Well, Shannon leads with what may be an important clue. Yeah, well, this is something that has happened several times, and employees are still trying to figure out where these dogs are even coming from. But footage of that first incident does show a cat, which is what they now think they may be after. That is kind of a cartoonish reason for non-cartoon dogs to wreak havoc at a car dealership, but it explains why they first showed up. It does not explain why they returned several times and why each time the brown dog literally tore the front bumpers off multiple cars with his teeth, sometimes yanking the entire grill off at the same time, apparently for fun, judging by the wagging tail. And meanwhile, the black dog just kind of hung around nearby wishing he could be as cool as his weird friend. Well, now both dogs have been apprehended and are in a Houston shelter where they should soon be cleared for adoption. They did an estimated $350,000 U.S. worth of damage at that dealership and left some pretty fancy vehicles looking like a dog's breakfast. Over the weekend, two more Palestinian journalists were killed in Gaza, bringing the total number of media workers killed by Israeli attacks to nearly 80. Freelancer Mustafa Turaya and Al Jazeera correspondent Hamza Dadu were on assignment in southern Gaza and were traveling in a car near, near Al-Mawasi when it was struck by an Israeli missile. The IDF has claimed that their vehicle had a terrorist operative inside and maintains that it does not target journalists. Meanwhile, the Committee to Protect Journalists is calling for a full investigation into the strike. Safwat Khaloud is an Al Jazeera producer in Gaza and a friend of Hamza Dadu's. We reached him in Rafa. Safwat, can you tell me about your friend? What was Hamza like? We know Hamza for many years now, since he has been joining us and uh, helping us in every uh, or during every Israeli escalation. 
And his father is uh, one of the most prominent mm-hmm. and important journalists in the Arab world. Well, so El Dadu, we should tell our listeners who we've, who we've yeah, spoken so, about before. Yeah, so Hamza, uh, we have been meeting. I, I work for Jazeera English, and he mm-hmm. has been helping Al Jazeera Arabic. And since he was also a young uh, journalist, and he was full of enthusiasm, full of activity, very active, helping everybody. He never hesitated uh to uh, to help uh, either Jazeera English or Jazeera mm-hmm. Arabic or even freelancers who ask for anything. Hamza got married last year, by the way. Mm-hmm. Our family attended, and all of the Jazeera family, and we attended his uh, his uh, wedding party, and we were, we were uh, all happy that Hamza became a man, and finally he's getting married. He was uh, loved by everyone. He was uh, helping everyone. Everybody considered him as his little brother in, uh, in, in our work. What do you know about the circumstances of how Hamza and, and the other journalist, Mustafa Turaya, how they were killed? We were together in the morning as doing our daily stuff that we have been doing since we moved to Rafah and we are meeting in the same tent. We do the technical things. He was responsible for solving the technical things. So uh, just half an hour after he solved my password in my in my mobile, half an hour only, you know, we were just talking and he went to do a story or to collect some uh, rushes or pictures from a place that the Israelis bombarded. And the place was for a family who was displaced from Khan Yunus and uh, followed the Israeli instructions and uh, ended up in Rafah. So suddenly the the Israeli drone fired two rockets uh, at their car, which ended up by the assassination or the killing of uh, Hamza, our colleague, and our friend together with other uh, colleagues. The Committee to Protect Journalists, we should remind our listeners, uh, is calling for an independent investigation into this particular Israeli strike. And as we've mentioned before, they, they have, they've talked about more than 70 Palestinian journalists and media workers being killed by Israel since October 7th. In terms of, of this particular strike that killed your friend, the IDF says... It was targeting, quote, a terrorist who operated an aircraft in a way that put IDF forces at risk, unquote. And they're saying that that these folks were all in the same vehicle. That's what the IDF is saying. What is your reaction to that? (laughs) He made me laughing from the Israeli nonstop stories. (laughs) You know, uh, last month they stormed a Shifa hospital, the main hospital in Gaza. They claimed and sent pictures to the whole world that Hamas has, uh, has been using uh, the Shifa hospital as operation uh, center or whatever. And of course, they have been just uh, they they have a justification. We have been hearing and listening to these justifications uh, for the cold blood killing of our people uh, for many years. So this is uh, expected. Now, the victims of the, the, of the Israeli killing machine is across 30,000 Palestinians, including more than 10,000 children. Uh, so, and they always have excuses. They can justify why they killed the women and children. They can justify why they destroyed 80% of the, the buildings or in the, uh, of the Gaza Strip. 
They always have justifications because they are above law. They will kill and keep killing and keep justifying until the, the people or the world these lies. We mentioned Hamza's father while he has already lost so much. Um, his wife, other children, a, a grandchild. But yet he is still reporting, and that's something people have, have underlined, his ability to, to keep telling the stories of Palestinians in Gaza right now. What keeps him going? What has he told you? Look, uh, frankly, uh, I don't know how this uh, man is still standing on his feet. You know, I myself, I didn't stop crying the whole day yesterday, remembering Hamza. How come with his father? I don't know. He's like, uh, now we call him, he's a mountain, you know. It's, it's an expression that we uh, we call to people, to strong people. He's like a mountain of Palestine. I, uh, we don't understand how can, how, where and how does he get this, uh, this, this power to keep reporting. He believes this is a struggle. This is a freedom struggle. And that the Israelis, by killing uh, his family and even his son, they are punishing him for keep telling the story because he made big difference uh, in, in terms of international community who are, who and Arab viewers who now know the truth through uh, Wael's uh, reporting, and even his body. Now he's injured, by the way. His, he cannot uh, carry the the mic in his right hand, and still he's carrying the mic. And, of course, his heart is bleeding, but he, he insists to continue until the truth. Safat, I want to ask you what keeps you doing this work, because you know well that some Palestinian journalists have left Gaza or scaled back their coverage because of all the risks and the realities they're facing. You have children as well. What keeps you doing your job? Look, personally, I am I am Palestinian. I I am Gazan. I live. I go. I I was born and grown up in this place. So I feel, and I believe that I have national duties first of all. Uh, and I, uh, you, and the others deserve to know the truth, as it is. And I feel like we are taking part, or we must take part, in this struggle uh, for uh, for freedom. So this is part. The minimum I can do. Of course, I have a family. I have children. I'm very much worried as a father for for my uh, my 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 sons for their lives. I want to uh, send them anywhere to keep them safe to continue my work and to continue my national duty uh, without being worried that uh, one day I I would lose one of them like uh, Wael and other journalists uh, did. I know many many journalists who lost all of their families, fathers, uh, wives, children, every, everything, and still they are on air. Mm. Safwat, I appreciate your time. Stay safe. Thank you. Safwat Kalut is a producer with Al Jazeera English. We reached him in Rafa in southern Gaza. It's been four years since passengers boarded flight PS752 in Tehran, headed for Ukraine and then to Canada. But shortly after takeoff, the Iranian military shot the plane down, killing all 176 people aboard, including 55 Canadian citizens and 30 permanent residents. 
Today, family members and friends of the victims joined Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in Richmond Hill, Ontario, to mark the anniversary. And for many of them, the past four years have been about battling grief, but also about battling for justice and accountability. I am Azadehidaripur, the mother of Amir Moradi, the passenger of seat number 4A and flight PS752 that was shot down by the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. Four unbearable years have passed from a crime that, that is unprecedented in the history of aviation. We were thrust onto a difficult path and all we, the grieving families of the victim, could do has been to unite and fight to bring the criminals to justice. We gather today to remember and honor all loved ones who perished so tragically. We gather today to stand in solidarity with our fellow compatriots in Iran who courageously stand in the face of tyranny with one voice calling Woman, life, freedom. I welcome you all who have gathered here today, and I thank you for standing with us over the past four years. We cherish your love and compassion as we continue on our journey for justice. That was Azadeh Hedaripur speaking today at a memorial on the fourth anniversary of the downing of Flight PS752. Her son, Amir Moradi, was one of 176 people killed when the Iranian military shot that plane down shortly after takeoff. That, of course, is Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, the best-known song from the musical Evita, and just one of several showstoppers performed by the title character. So you can understand why the Curve Theatre in Leicester, UK, was thrown for a loop this weekend when the actor playing Evita got sick. But, of course, it's a professional production, so there's an understudy who would save the day. Or would have, probably, if she hadn't also been sick. So the Curve had a choice. It could do the easy, disappointing thing and cancel the performance, or it could put out an emergency call for a replacement lead. It did the second one, and Jessica Daly answered that emergency call. We reached her in London. Jessica, your phone didn't actually ring. It wasn't a phone call, but it did light up just before noon on Saturday with a text. What did that text say? And that text did say, um, happy. well, it said, Happy New Year, and it said... Um, we're struggling here at the theatre for an uh, Eva Peron this evening, for this evening's show in Evita. Um, we're wondering if you're free to uh, hop in the car and come and help us in Leicester, which is crazy. And how long did you have to make up your mind? 
Um, not very long, actually. I kind of made my mind up immediately that I was going to um, get in the car. Um, I was in a bit of a shock for a bit. Um, I did. I have to. I, wa- I waited for my mum to come home. She went to walk the dog. <laughs> and I shouted when she came back in. I said, oh, "Mum, I've got to get in the car." And I was in the car within like an hour um, with a fully packed suitcase, ready to rock and roll. Um, so yeah, it was. Almost immediately that I was like, this is happening. I'm going to do it. And you live about three yeah. hours from the theater, we should mention. Yes, I do live three hours away. Um, so I had to throw everything in the car and I hit the road and I got there at 4 p.m. Um, on the afternoon. And then I was on stage by 7.45 p.m. in the evening. Curtain was at 8? Uh, 7.30, but um, because of rehearsal time, it kind of went over. They gave me an extra 15 minutes, which was... Very, very helpful to throw some makeup on my face and to make myself look presentable. How generous. How generous. <laughs> you have played Evita professionally before, but it's been several years, about five years since you did that. And also, this is a different kind of production of Evita. The songs are obviously the same. The story is the same, but the staging is different. So how did you get yourself into that Oh, it was very, very different. I mean, I did the original um, Hal Prince production um, over in China um, internationally for four months. Um, this production in Leicester is a more of a modern approach to things, um, kind of like she's a social media star. And then obviously I had created a version of her within one production and then to go into a completely different production was really different. Um, and absolute kudos to the cast who adapted to me as much as I adapted to what they were offering we were all kind of in it together in the end were you on that that three-hour drive singing the entire soundtrack <laughs> or at least the Evita yes. parts no yes I was I I had the um the cast recording actually came in really handy um <laughs> when I was when I was packing my suitcase um initially I'd already all at the moment I'm on tour uh, with a different show called um I should be so lucky and my touring suitcase was like half full when I was half sorting it out so I kind of threw everything into that um and while I was packing that I had like I was like Alexa play a Vita cast recording um so I had that ringing out whilst I was packing and then immediately when I got in the car it was it was on and I was listening and recapping and revising uh until I got to Leicester it would be hard enough to to remember everything after five years have gone by even though it's probably embedded in there in your in your brain forever but then to also have the numbers from the other production you're working on. So were you worried yeah. that you were going to slip? Um, no, do you know what? I went into kind of this weird state of like, I will be doing this no matter what. And I just, I just, I just got on the train and I rode the train right until the end of the evening. Um, and I think everything just came so kind of like one tunnel ahead of me. I just, got on the train and I, I went towards it and blocked out everything else that I possibly could. So yeah, it was it was just crazy. I can't quite get my head around it, if I'm honest. It sounds like, like, I mean, you describe that focus and, yeah. and that drive. It sounds a lot like Evita, really, for anyone who's seen. She was pretty focused. Weirdly, you were possessed by her yeah. spirit. Yeah, I mean, like, and again, like, she faked it until she made it, and I, I was kind of in the same position. Well, I don't think you were faking like, it. You had the goods. You just had to recall. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, the determination of of her and um, 
her willingness to kind of succeed, um, I think that really came alive in me on Saturday. And so how did the performance go? How did the audience react? Oh my gosh, I mean, our the director, Nikolai, went out beforehand to kind of let everyone know exactly what was going on in the situation. And from the get-go, they were really supportive and really behind us. And the theatre in Leicester is such a special place. I've worked there quite a few times before and I've interacted a lot with the audiences there and got to know quite a few people who live in the surrounding area and they're just so supportive. Some people found out that I was on and, and bought tickets and I'm not even from that town. Like They just showed up it to support and you really felt that from the get-go and from the minute that I finished, um, obviously there's a big section at, at the beginning and I got to the end of that and they burst into applause and I was like, oh yeah, they're with us. Okay, cool. Go <laughs> I, got them. I got them. Yeah. Is it you've spent so much time with Evita over the years? Is it hard to to play her for just one night? No, it was just magical. If I'm honest, um, I've I've really missed it, and I've recently actually I feel like I've manifested it a little bit because oh. a couple of weeks ago I got really in my feels about it and decided to listen to the cast recording for the first time in a very long time. I was yearning to do it again. I was like, if I just want one shot to kind of do it in the UK because nobody not a lot of people got to see me in China obviously you got that shot (laughs) yes that's one Um, goal of 2024 uh down yeah yeah nailed it I was like yeah it showed (laughs) up a couple of weeks later and I I I swear I manifested it it's crazy bravo bravo on several on several counts Jessica it's been a pleasure I'm really glad we could (laughs) chat take care thank you thank you Jessica Daly is an actor who recently made a surprise appearance, even to herself, in a staging of Evita. We reached her in London. Status check. Go Vulcan. Go Centaur. Go Peregrine. Five, four, three, we have ignition. And liftoff of the first United Launch Alliance Vulcan rocket. From early this morning, the sounds of Peregrine Mission 1 heading into space. Well, the Peregrine is supposed to be the first U.S. moon lander since Apollo. The mission is a collaboration between NASA and Astrobotic Technology, a private firm, and will be the first commercial operation to attempt a lunar landing. It was aiming to loop around Earth before heading for the moon, but after a successful launch, the mission is now in jeopardy because of technical problems. Simeon Barber is a planetary scientist at the Open University. He developed an instrument that will allow Peregrine 1 to analyze molecules on the moon, We reached him in London earlier today. Simeon, as we start this conversation, the latest communication online from Astrobotic is that that the failures that that they've been experiencing throughout the day, uh, they've decided to, quote, prioritize maximizing the science and data we can capture and assessing what alternative mission profiles may be feasible. What does that message say to you? First thing to say is I, I get the uh, I get my information from the same place. Mm-hmm. So I, I see that on social media as well, and I think that's that's kind of how these missions work. So I think it's great that they've been very open with the with the information. You know, clearly there's um, a significant issue here, but I think just like 
in a way, all along through this mission, we've had to be flexible. So our our involvement in this mission was to build an instrument during a pandemic here in the UK. Um, you know, we rose to that challenge, and now we'll be looking at maximising the returns we get from the mission you know, in, in any way we can. And I think the next few days we'll be looking at how to do that. Does that message mean it's not going to make it to the moon, or is that still possible? I, I think it's very early days to say. So I think we've just got to look carefully at what that, what that message says. It, it says there are clearly some issues, and you know, they're obviously still trying to work out how best to recover it. So Okay, so um, it's, not, it's not a done deal yet, it sounds value. like. Right. No, I don't think so. What exactly happened, if you could explain it to, to our listeners? My understanding, again, reading the social media, is that there was an issue with the propulsion system, which means that um, they were unable to control the spacecraft into the kind of the attitude, so the you know the pointing they wanted to achieve and the directional capability. Um, so, you know, effectively not being able to point the spacecraft where you want it means you. Um, struggle to get the solar panels into the sunlight and therefore there's an issue with mm-hmm. charging batteries, all that kind of stuff. So an issue with the propulsion system, but then that has knock-on effects for you know where you're going and the direction you're pointing in. What has this this day been like for you? I, I'm trying to imagine, you know, the moment of launch uh, mm-hmm. and then to to this point where, where we're speaking. What was it like at that at that launch for you, at that moment for you? The, the launch was fantastic. It was um, an amazing way to start the day here in the UK. So it was something like uh, 80 minutes past 7 o'clock in the morning. So, yeah, I, I think all Mondays should start with a rocket <laughs> launch. That would be you know, a good way to start yeah. the week. Um, and to be honest, things were looking really good. You know, that, that was great to see that, you know, another milestone had been achieved. Um, and to be honest, the, the announcement came a bit out of the blue. And, you know, it's kind of, it feels a bit surreal now because the whole the day up to now was kind of really excited looking forward to 23rd of february but you know exploring space is, is difficult we know that and mm. you know it sounds like there are opportunities to try and make the best of the current situation and, and that's what i'll be focused on were you always on board with this kind of partnership or is that something you had to get your head around based on on how you were working before or is this just the future in your mind um, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the experience, and yeah. I continue to do so. And um, you know, there's, there's lots of ways to achieve a certain objective, and you know, you you've got to try different ways, or else you get stuck in a rut. So, you know, I think steps forward have been make, made, whatever happens here on. And you know, we we shouldn't um, we shouldn't get overly excited when things go right, and we mm-hmm. shouldn't get overly down when things go badly you know this to me the new space era is about strategic partnerships and long-term planning that allow steps to be put in place by everybody concerned to have um, a kind of a coordinated um, pathway to explore space you know this is not about putting all eggs in one basket and this is about doing things a bit more incrementally than was done in the past and, and learning as we go along and not being afraid to, to take risks in order to make progress. So, yeah I'm, yeah, I'm on board with that. It's okay. I wanted to ask you about the instrument that you mentioned that you contributed to, the ion trap mass spectrometer. What is it doing on board? 
So, yeah, it is a device which is, um, it sits in a little, little box on the deck of the lander. And after landing, the, there's a trap door on the top of the box which opens and it allows the lunar atmosphere, which is incredibly thin, you know, it's, it's less than a millionth of a millionth of the atmosphere we have on the Earth. But this atmosphere enters the box and enters this ion trap mass spectrometer, which you can think of it as a, a weighing machine for gas molecules. So we, the instrument determines the mass of each molecule. And we know that water, for example, has a mass of 18 and argon has a mass of 40. So by weighing the molecules, the instrument can identify what they actually are. And it also counts those molecules. So what we get as an output in, in the data that's transmitted back to Earth is the identity of all the molecules that we find in the atmosphere and their relative concentrations. I suspect you stare at the moon a lot, but tonight will you be looking at it sort of with, with different eyes? <laughs> Do you know, I yes, that's a really good question. So when I was driving into um, to work this morning and it was still dark and the moon was beautiful, um, you know, it's just a little sliver in the sky. And, uh, yeah, I'll have another look at it, and I'll, I'll let you know we'll have what, what, uh, what emotions it raises. Simeon, thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for your interest. Simeon Barber is a senior research fellow at the Open University. We reached him in London earlier today. Winter has arrived in Nova Scotia. Over the weekend, several parts of the province got heavy snow. Some schools were closed this morning. And while some people have been braving the cold to get to class or work, others have been outside 24 hours a day. In Halifax, residents of tent encampments have been bracing for the weather as best they can. That includes people in the encampment at the city's Grand Parade Square, where about 20 people are currently camping. Steve Wilsack has been volunteering at the Grand Parade and often sleeping there to support residents. We reached him in the square. Steve, we know uh, it's certainly another cold day in Halifax. Can you just describe what, what's what's happening at the site right now? So, I'm located in Halifax. It's in front of City Hall. The encampment's here. We have people walking around in winter clothing. It's sub-zero temperatures. We just went through two extremely cold nights. Uh, we have another huge weather storm uh, coming to Nova Scotia on Wednesday. It is truly winter. It's truly a time of coldness and a time not to be in a tent. And you're not just volunteering there during the day. You're also sleeping there some of the time. So what is it like to wake up there on a day like this? It's like you're sleeping in the middle of the woods and you're helpless. And unfortunately, the cold uh, creates an atmosphere that numbs your senses. It doesn't allow you to uh, properly prepare for the day. And uh, in many cases, you're up half the night because you're still trying to keep warm. How do you even prepare for something like that? You don't. Uh, You exist. And that's the unfortunate part of many of our residents and uh, and also being here. Uh, You lose track of time. Uh, For a lot of uh, residents, people have been here for months and months and months. Uh, People are not used to living in extreme winter conditions, and it's reached a certain tipping point for a lot of the residents. It just creates havoc within your own mental stability at times. 
When you say a tipping point for some of the residents, what do you mean by that? What does that look like and mean for them? For a lot of residents, uh, we have uh, challenges with mental health, uh, many addictions, and oftentimes there's a limited amount of food that's available. Uh, Oftentimes, many of the residents uh, don't have any source of immediate income, so they're literally out in the streets uh, doing whatever they can in order to survive. It's uh, it's a dire strait for many of the encampments. The other part of the equation is, is that we have the working poor. Uh, with the amount of apartments that are not available, rent evictions, we have uh, many people in, from Nova Scotia that are living in encampments that shouldn't be there, and they're going to work every day, and that is the struggle. We spoke to a woman on the program who was in that kind of a situation. I know it's not necessarily a surprise to you, but I wonder what your reaction is to the news that the city is going to open the shelter at the Halifax Forum. Yes, um, I have mixed reactions on that. Um, This is a first step. Uh, I was initially a little reluctant to uh, see that there would be some people that wouldn't want to go, but I just actually met with a couple city officials, and I think it's a great first step. Mm -hmm. The challenge that we all have in 2024 is uh, encampments aren't going away anytime soon. There's a housing crisis. There are going to be residents that don't want to go into this type of scenario, and we have to find permanent solutions that would work for everyone. They are anticipating that the doors will open on the 22nd, And I believe those beds would be filled within a matter of days. And I believe that there's extra capacity to expand that number as needed. No matter what the situation is, uh, we cannot have uh, Nova Scotians, we cannot have Maritimers, we cannot have Canadians outdoors in any type of weather such as this. In the meantime, in the weeks before those those beds at the Forum uh, are, are ready... What kinds of things are in place uh, at the encampment to so, try to keep people as safe as possible? Yes. And so what we've done uh, at our encampment, uh, we're trying to set up uh, you know, the best scenario given the circumstances. We've hired on security for 24 hours a day, seven days a week to provide the necessary uh, safeness for our encampment. Uh, we were very fortunate to work with the City of Halifax, WF White, and a local company to provide electricity to the encampment. uh, We're just praying that the weather uh, doesn't get too rough in the next couple of weeks in order to get to the next stage of uh, being able to offer shelter. As we mentioned, you're you're volunteering there, but but you're choosing to sleep there as part of your support. Why is it important for you to do that? Well, I'll give an example. Last night... uh, we, we, I had security here. It's uh, 4 o'clock in the morning, and somebody runs out of propane. And uh, they literally had no place to go, and I was able to accommodate that. There's oftentimes where there's a mental health crisis, um, and if it's simple as calling the non-emergency number to help out, it's important. Uh, it also shows solidarity uh, on our part that we're here fighting with you and we're experiencing the pain that you have. It's not as much as that you actually have, but it has allowed us to become part of the community, to build up morale, uh, also to build up trust. Uh, It's critical. And I have to say, as 
as as being from Nova Scotia and Nova Scotian, uh, you know, this is our family, and we can't let our family down. And this is an extension of our family. We should mention you're not an activist. You've become an advocate for the people there. But what propelled you to do this in the first place? Compassion. I've never seen our province like this before. It breaks my heart to see people living outside. Looked up here one day and I saw tents at City Hall. It's wrong. And as we learn the stories of other people, you can't turn a blind eye to it. It hurts. And we have to figure out how to be compassionate and to fix this. Steve, I appreciate your time. Take care, please. Thank you for your time. Steve Wilsack has been volunteering at a tent encampment in Halifax's Grand Parade. That's where we reached him. Penicillin, electricity, Dolly the sheep, the explanation for why wombats poop cubes. All scientific breakthroughs that changed the way we live and fundamentally altered our view of the world. But then there are the discoveries that do a little less than that. The discoveries that leave us thinking, hmm, that has altered my worldview very marginally. Take some recent research led by Oxford's Department of Physics. Now, part of the study involved revealing the true color of the planet Neptune. Over the decades, Neptune has become known for its rich blue color, but now we know Neptune is actually plaid. Psych, still blue, just a less deep azure and more lighter greenish blue, maybe a periwinkle, very similar to Uranus, don't be immature, which the researchers say is also a greenish blue. In a press release from Oxford, research lead Professor Patrick Irwin explained that the original Voyager 2 images of the planets were stretched and enhanced, and even then, planetary scientists knew the resulting images of Neptune did not depict its true color at all. But the distinction was lost over time, a mistake that ultimately had little bearing on our daily existence, but has now been corrected. Astronomer Heidi Hamill told the New York Times that she hoped this paper would help undo the decades of misinformation about Neptune's color and urged us to, quote, strike the word azure from your vocabulary when discussing Neptune, unquote. Well, I can azure you. That will not be difficult. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.